Welcome. You're listening to The Drive Podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Orlando. In our current series, we are walking through the letter of Philippians as the Apostle Paul writes to encourage the people of Philippi to live out their faith with joy and in unity. Let's listen in and see what God has in store for us. Hey, guys, if you have a Bible, um, turn to Philippians chapter 1. Don't get too comfortable. We're not going to be there very long. Get a finger in the book of Acts chapter 16. Uh, The verses will be on the screen. There's a Bible or two on your table, and I'm sure you got a phone. Uh, Tonight we talk context. Tonight we're going to talk about the history of Philippi. Uh, If you were here last week, we started a series uh, on the book of Philippians, looking at the letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Philippi. And we just kind of hung out last week on just one or two verses, one or two main ideas, main thoughts uh, that I was convinced that, uh, that Paul's Paul kind of hung his hat on. And we plan to hang out in Philippians for, I don't know, like the next couple of months. So get comfortable there. Uh, Wherever we leave off this week, read the next couple of verses so you're kind of prepared and chewing on that text before you guys come into here. Uh, Last week, I had a couple preliminary thoughts about Philippians. I said that Philippians is the story of the Jesus who indwelt Paul, who now indwells us. And, And I said that Philippians is all about living. It is this rich expose on living, living with meaning and living with purpose and living with significance and and living with a depth of peace and a depth of joy that cannot be taken away from you regardless of what the circumstances are that you're living in and experiencing and walking through. Because of all people, Paul knew about uh, crappy circumstances and yet he was writing from a prison cell about joy about peace, about experiencing Jesus in the midst of chains, right? And so we talked a little bit about what it means to live as Christ. Paul said, man, living means Christ. For me, living is Jesus. I don't know what living means for you, Philippians 1.21, but for me, it's all about Jesus. And so we talked about what it means for, for our lives to be Jesus, for living to be Christ, for him to be not just our Lord, our Savior, but our very life. And so you guys kind of batted that around in the discussion at the tables and kind of conversated. And we're going to do that again tonight. We're going to have some discussion questions on your table. So uh, for those of you sitting at a table with a bunch of people, go ahead and start figuring out who's going to be the one facilitating because one of y'all are going to need to lead it. This table's already got theirs. But we'll go ahead and begin in Philippians chapter 1 and just take a look at one or two verses and then jump over to the book of Acts and look at what happened there in Philippi when Paul and his ragtag band of missionaries landed for the first time ever on European soil with the good news of the gospel. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse 3. We'll start in verse 3. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul was grateful for these believers in Philippi for a number of reasons. But perhaps one of the greatest we see here in verse 5, their partnership in the gospel. Now that word partnership is the word, the word koinonia in the Greek. And usually we see that word koinonia and it renders the English word fellowship. And it appears all throughout this letter, koinonia. And it denotes a variety of different relationships. Relationships that at their center, they have a mutual interest, a shared interest. Like, say, for, for instance, okay, uh, say Aaron and, say, Christopher purchased a boat to start a fishing business, okay? 
Do either of you like fishing? Score, awesome, great. You guys would have entered into koinonia, into fellowship. You guys have a shared interest, a mutual interest, a mutual goal, right? And so the heart of true fellowship, true koinonia, is a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Paul came to town specifically to plant churches and to preach Jesus Christ. That was the goal. And so all of the relationships that he built among the Philippians, at least those people that didn't try to stone him and kill him, those relationships were rooted and grounded in a relationship with Jesus with a common mission of planting churches and extending the, the kingdom of God. And so Paul's koinonia with these believers in Philippi, they were twofold, okay? There were gospel-centered friendships and there was a mission of proclaiming the gospel, okay? Friendship and gospel proclamation. They shared in common a savior, Okay? They were united by one spirit. They had a mission of planting churches and they were ultimately headed for glory together, right? That's what they had in common. That's what they had in fellowship. And if you belong to Jesus, the same is true for all of us, right? We have one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, one church. Jesus Christ is the head. We have all of those things in common. And so our relationships among one another should primarily be about knowing Christ and making Jesus known. And yet, sadly, many in our culture see the church of Jesus Christ as an audience of customers to be pleased, right? rather than a family of co-laborers called and equipped to go on mission for the gospel's sake. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, I'm so cool with you guys coming here and participating in the drive so that you guys can get to know different people in your demographic. That, that's not the only reason that we're gathering. I mean, I, I would even personally say that's not the reason we're gathering at all, but it is to equip and it is to encourage, and it is to exhort. And for some of y'all knuckleheads, it is to rebuke you so that we can be about the call of God on our lives and equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry in whatever sphere of influence you're in so that we can know Christ and make him known in the darkness and the decay that is the greater Orlando area because we are the salt and the light. And so that's why we gather. That's why we do what we do. It's why we're rebooting our serve team so that we can create events where we're actually going into the community and serving and being the hands and the feet of Jesus. But we're also gonna chill and have fun and go to the beach and get to know each other. But man, we wanna meet needs in our community and we wanna be about gospel proclamation and gospel friendships. And so Paul thought fondly of these men and women in Philippi. Right? They weren't nameless, faceless individuals as we're about to see when we get over into Acts chapter 16. And regardless of the negative circumstances that Paul experienced in Philippi, man, his vision was captured with, with affection and joy for these believers. And, and listen, as we're about to see in Acts 16, there were some seriously negative circumstances. I mean, Paul, Paul, was, Paul was beaten with rods. He was stripped of his clothing, something unimaginable to a pious Jewish man. He was thrown into the inner recesses of the dungeon, bloodied and bruised, not sure if he was gonna get out again. And yet in the midst of all of that, the dude couldn't stop thinking of what God had done in and was doing through the believers in Philippi. And so these aren't nameless, faceless individuals. I'm convinced he saw their faces as he writes these words in Philippians 1. 
Man, I make mention of you in all my prayers, offering them with prayer, with thanksgiving and joy. And so he talks about a partnership in the gospel. What was this partnership about? He says it was from the first day until now there in verse five. Let's talk about the now. What is the now that Paul is grateful for? Well, Epaphroditus had just arrived with some money, okay? Philippi had sent a check to Paul, like they're putting money in his commissary, right? But this wasn't the first time that they did. Did anyone get that? Yeah, no, I figured it wouldn't land. It was a lame joke about, yeah, anyways. So he writes to them, and this isn't the first time that Philippi sent money to them. They cut a check one, like two other times, we believe, in the New Testament. And so Paul was so grateful for the financial contribution that they were making, not just to meet his needs while he was prison, but also to advance the gospel. But Paul also says that he was grateful for, for their partnership from the first day until now. Paul was just as excited about what God had done as what God was doing. And so what happened from the first day? I'm so glad you asked. Turn to Acts chapter 16. And we're going to kind of detour for the rest of the night and go into one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Acts. And we're going to unpack Acts chapter 16 of what happened when Paul and his gang landed there in Philippi. And in Acts chapter 16, the doctor, Luke, is giving his account of three radical encounters and the diversity of how the gospel saves people, how the gospel meets people. These were real people with real stories, and this is history right here. This is exciting, man, exciting stories of how the Holy Spirit moved in and through uh, Paul and his missionary team. And so we'll pick up the story in Acts chapter 16, verse 13. Acts 16, 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman, the women who had gathered together. One of us heard, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Okay, so here's the deal, <clears throat> excuse me. Because Philippi was a Gentile city and the gospel hadn't gone forth yet, there was yet to be a synagogue established in the city. But strangely enough, it was customary in that day for a place of prayer to be designated outside the city gates around a central source of water. Paul, being really smart, knew that and understood that. And so he made a beeline for the central water source to see perhaps if there were some men and women that were observing Sabbath, that were worshiping. Because as we see in the book of Romans chapter 1, that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Paul's, Paul's method was to go to the synagogue, was to preach to his countrymen and then move towards the Gentiles in the marketplace. And so he went to look for Jews. And what did he find? He found a group of women sitting by the waterside. And so they sat down and they talked to these ladies and were introduced to this first character, Lydia. Now, some scholars believe that these women were Jews or God-fearing Gentiles, converts to Judaism. They were observing the Sabbath. They were reading and studying the scriptures, perhaps hoping that a Jewish scholar or a scribe would come by with an explanation or an exhortation and maybe teach some word to them. And can I tell you that it wouldn't have looked like much at the time, perhaps no more than a picnic, Right? Like if we were walking by, we probably would have kept going and we would not have been, we, we, we wouldn't have 
just by looking at their appearance, we wouldn't have been able to understand that what we were looking at was actually one of the most pivotal events in the unfolding of the plan of God in redemptive history. Like this was the first time that the gospel was landing on European soil. Like, like we can all trace a line back to this. This is the gospel going forth. This is the history of the gospel coming to the West. And we probably would have walked right by, but, but Paul understood and he knew. And so he sits down and we're introduced to this woman named Lydia. And verse 14 says she was from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So let's do a brief character sketch here. And this is where you guys play along. And, and, and let's, let's kind of do a profile on her. What do we see about her? What do we know about her? Who was she racially, ethnically? Where was she from? Thyatira, it's, it's in the book. This is open book, people. From Thyatira, okay? Anybody tell me where Thyatira was? Think Revelation 2 and 3. It was in Asia Minor. It was one of the seven churches in Revelation. And so she, she was a foreigner, at least, to Philippi, okay? So she was an outsider, a foreigner who came. And it says that she was what? A seller of what? What do you think that means economically for her in that day and age? What's that? Yeah, she, she, she's banking, okay? She's probably well off at least, okay? Chances are pretty good that if she wasn't a dyer of purple herself, she was a trader of purple, which meant that she probably had lots of contacts, probably brought her business over from Thyatira. She probably had a mountain house up in the Golan Heights, great skiing, had a house down at Lake Jackson, or not Lake Jackson, but uh, Lake Galilee, right? Probably owned a franchise of Chick-fil-A's. I mean, because she was a worshiper of God, so surely she ate at Chick-fil-A, right? What do you think it means that she was a worshiper of God? I kind of alluded to it already. But she was probably a convert to Judaism, which meant that she was doing everything that she knew how to engage and interact and encounter with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She believed the law of Moses. She was observing the Sabbath. She was doing everything that she knew how to do in that moment. So she was a moral person, a religious person. Now, we don't see this in the ESV translation. I'm a fan of the New American Standard. It takes a little bit more literal translation from the Greek. And in the NASB, and I have it up on the screen, it says that, let me see, the bottom one, it says she was a worshiper of God and she was listening. ESV kind of says that her ability to listen only happened after God did a work in her heart. That's a whole conversation we ain't even try to get into. But the idea is if the bottom translation is correct, which I believe it is, what does this tell us about Lydia, that she was listening? What do you think? Nothing profound. Yes, ma'am. Okay, yeah, absolutely. She was preparing herself to listen, to hear. She was attentive. Maybe she was open. Maybe she was spiritually sensitive. Definitely she was there on Sabbath. Maybe she was seeking. She definitely had a desire to hear what the teacher, what Paul had to say in that moment. What do you think her social scene looked like? Think she had friends? Think she was isolated and alone? Verse 15, take a look. That kind of helps fill the picture in. After God does a work in her heart, we see that she and her whole household were baptized. What did a household look like in the Greco-Roman world in the first century? Any, any takers? 
That junk included everybody. Like, you're talking immediate family, extended family. You're talking your servants and house slaves, even your business acquaintances and your cousin's sister's baby mama's uncle. Like, everybody was a part of the household. I don't think they had those relationships. But anyways, everybody was a part of the household. So surely she was socially connected. She wasn't isolated. She wasn't alone. There's a reason that we're kind of looking at this character sketch because we're about to see the exact contrast in the slave girl who was possessed by a demon who the gospel reached. But first, let's, let's look at Lydia. So we have a picture of her, right? She, she has her whole household that responds to the gospel as well. She's socially connected. Well, how does the gospel reach her? Take a look at verse 13 and 14 again for a moment. And somebody tell me what medium God used to bring her to faith. Poor leading question, wasn't it? <laughs> She's having a conversation, right? Paul sits down and he's having a dialogue with her, rational discourse, right? Paul sits down and he begins explaining to her what she has understood all of her life, or at least all of the time that she'd been walking with the Lord. And so this is just a dialogue. Paul begins to lay out the gospel truths for her. And we see in verse 14 that the Lord opened up her heart to respond, and none of us were there. We don't, have, we don't have a picture in the scriptures of what that looked like, but if I can read between the lines for a moment, I imagine that Paul began explaining to her what all of her religious devotion and all of her religious practice really meant. I, I can imagine Paul starting maybe with Abraham and, and kind of working his way through Moses and the law all the way up to David and then finally coming to rest on Jesus. I can hear him saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the one size fits all sacrifice for sin. I can imagine he said every prophet, every priest, every king, every hero of the faith in the Old Testament scriptures, they all point forward to Jesus. And so there's a, there's a, there's a rational dialogue. Paul is, Paul is using reason to communicate the gospel to her. And she saw something in that dialogue that was beautiful. And she responded, the Lord opened up her heart. And so in that moment, all of her Jewish practice, the fulfillment of all of her religious devotion, it culminated in the beauty of the gospel, seeing for the first time how Jesus, Jesus was the answer to all the questions, all of the practice that she'd been doing. The facts made sense. The information was logical. It clearly communicated truth. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the gospel. Now, how do we know that the gospel took root in her life? We see three evidences. One, she responded. Two, she was immediately obedient, verse 15, with the rite of baptism, and her whole family was involved with that. And then three, what did she do with her home? What's up? She opened it up, absolutely. She's like, listen, let my house be a base camp for your ministry, right? Once her heart had been opened up to the Lord, she then opened up her resources to the Lord as well. And Paul does what he does best. He began to build the ministry around those who responded to the gospel. And from these small beginnings, guys, the church in the West, the church in, in Europe began. And I'd like to point out that the church in the West started with a woman. Y'all girls make some noise, yeah. That's right, that's right. Okay, hold on to Lydia. Let's look at this next radical encounter, verse 16 through 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. 
Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Okay, so the Greek says literally that she had the spirit of Python. Okay? In the Greek culture, a Pythoness was a person who was believed to be possessed by the spirit of Python who was guarding the mythic temple of Apollo in the Delphic Oracle. It's a mouthful to say she was a ventriloquist for an evil spirit who would tell the future. Right? And so the picture is people came, gave money to her masters, and she would say things, weird things in strange voices that were future fortune telling. And so her masters were making lots of money off of her. So let's, let's kind of do a character sketch on her. What do you think this did, this spirit of Python, what do you think this did for her social prospects? Yeah. Eh. I think being possessed by a spirit would probably limit the BFFs maybe. Maybe she didn't have a lot of friends, right? But I don't think she would, just was a social outcast, but I, I see that she was being exploited by the only human interaction she had. See, it wasn't enough that she had this psychological and spiritual being bound by these demonic forces, but she was also bound by her human masters too. They, she was a victim of social injustice as well as demonic oppression. This is a clear parallel to the sexual slavery going on in our world and in our country, right? Human masters, demonic oppression coming together to enslave and to abuse an individual made in the image of God. Now, we're not told this girl's ethnicity or place of origin. She was most likely local. She was probably a Greek girl, okay? Because Philippi was one of the leading cities in Macedonia. What do you think her economic worth was? I don't think she was getting a cut. You know, this is pure speculation, but as far as we can tell, she's got nothing. No possessions whatsoever. Worse off, she was herself a possession. And so what happened here? Paul gets annoyed, right? I love that. It reads like he just got fed up and let loose on the spirit, but that word annoyed in the Greek, it's also translated as greatly distressed, pained, pained deep inside or worked up. Paul was very affected on a very deep level by what was going on around this girl, but also inside this girl. Because again, she didn't just have demonic masters. She had human masters that were in concert with evil here. This is, this is real, the partnership between humanity and demonic forces of darkness. And so what happens next? How is she liberated? Paul says in a word and immediately the spirit is gone, right? And I think it's safe to say that this slave girl was not interested in a rational dialogue like Lydia, right? I don't think she cared at that moment how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises, right? She needed an encounter with the liberating power of God. Now, nothing tells us here that this woman became a Christian. The text doesn't tell us if she got saved. I don't think the Bible ever mentions her again. But what we do know is that she was liberated by Jesus through Paul and she was liberated across the board. The demonic forces no longer had their hold on her. She couldn't be exploited anymore by the human slaves. And my hope, my prayer is that after Paul and Silas get dragged off, that Timothy and Luke would kind of take her aside and say, let me introduce you to who just liberated you. Pure speculation, but man, I sure hope she's with Jesus right now. 
Okay, so we've got two ladies, right? We've got Lydia, we've got this slave girl. We've got one who's a respectable businesswoman, and we've got another one who is a slave, right? Scarcely a member of human community at all, pretty much a piece of property. We've got Lydia, who is this moral, religious person. She loved and she knew her Bible, and we've got this slave girl who's completely alienated from any sense of morality except for her demonic oppressors, right? Any knowledge of truth outside of what she was being told to say. Lydia had much to be proud of. The slave girl was completely marginalized as a non-person, no dignity whatsoever. Two totally different women at completely different ends of the spectrum, racially, socially, economically, morally. What does this say about the scope of the gospel? And we've got two radically different encounters with the gospel as well. Encounters with Jesus. A rational discourse with Lydia, a display of power with the slave girl. Lydia came quietly, the slave girl came loudly. Lydia came through a Bible study and the slave girl was brought through an encounter of deliverance. What do these radically different encounters tell us about Jesus? What's that? Yeah, he meets you where you are. Yeah. He knows what each individual needs, right? Their greatest need. It tells us that the gospel is as much for nice and moral people as it is for broken and addicted people, right? There's one more encounter here. And all the men said amen, right? Because finally we get to see a dude get saved. Let's look at the Philippian jailer here as we kind of finish up. In many ways, the jailer was in the middle of the conditions between Lydia and the slave girl. As far as we can tell, he wasn't a moral, Bible-honoring guy. He, he didn't come calmly and gently during a Bible study knowing what he was doing, but neither was he confronted and pursued by the evangelist in a powerful way. It's doubtful that he really knew what he meant when he came to Paul and said, hey, man, what must I do to be saved? It's just that he knew that there was something different about these Guys, And so what happened in the rest of the story, right? The, the, the masters of the slave girl are outraged. They've just lost their meal ticket, right? And so they stir up the frenzy of the crowd and they grab Paul and Silas and they take them in front of the magistrate and they, they, they strip them and they beat them with rods and they throw them into the inner recesses of the dungeon. And that's where the jailer comes into the story for the first time. Look at verse 23, follow along. And when they'd inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now take a moment and look over those verses. What do you think led the jailer to fall before Paul and Silas and to ask, what must I do to be saved? Why do you think he was on the edge of killing himself? Oh, no, he definitely was, but why? What drove him to that? What did he think? Yeah, he was absolutely responsible for those prisoners. Yeah. 
and he thought, oh no, they're gone. I think he thought, hey, those doors are open. If I was in there, I'd have been out of there in a heartbeat. And so yeah, he drew his sword out. Here's a different question. Why do you think Paul and Silas stayed put? What's that? Save his life. Yeah, absolutely. I think both Paul and Silas knew that when those doors were open and those chains fell off, that they had the freedom to leave. But I think they also knew that they had the freedom to stay, right? Because they both understood that if they fled, they would be leaving and getting their freedom at the expense of the jailer's life. But at the center of their lives, they'd received this new narrative, right? This new story. They were in prison, but they were freer than they could ever be because they had already received freedom at the expense of another's life. And so the gospel had so taken root in Paul and Silas that they could stay put and somehow supernaturally keep these prisoners from leaving as well. I think that has something to do back with 25 when they were singing midnight songs and those prisoners in there saw how Christianity fortified these guys to live in the midst of suffering and abuse. And it showed them, wow, what do these guys have? If they're not going, I'm not going anywhere. There was a different narrative at the heart and at the center of these guys' lives that because Jesus had died for them and risen with them and now lived in them with an indestructible life that saw through prison bars and stocks and chains, they were free to stay put and trust the provision and power of God to make something awesome happen. I mean, did he not just come through in an earthquake and like unlatch chains and prison doors? And so this jailer, he wasn't looking for this rational explanation of the gospel, though he would get it. And he surely didn't think he needed this power encounter with God, though that too was coming. This guy needed to see the gospel reverse the values of the world. He was radically helped by Christians in the midst of a crisis. And what he saw was went against everything that he knew to be true. Guys forsaking their freedom, paying the price so that he might not face death. And that flipped everything upside down for him. And guys, the church of Jesus Christ is at its best when it's teaching this new narrative, this new language that takes words like suffering and abuse and persecution and begins to breathe life in them because we grieve as those who have hope. And we see death differently when we have joined our lives to the life that has defeated death. And so the jailer, like those prisoners, saw firsthand the way Christianity prepares and fortifies these guys for what, for what the worst that life presents. Perhaps he saw and heard their songs too in the middle of the night. And so the jailer said to them, how do I get what you've got? What must I do to be saved? Three surprising conversions, or at least two surprising conversions, and I'm hoping for a third with the slave girl. A well-to-do businesswoman, a demon-possessed slave, and a Gentile jailer. Perhaps one of the most surprising parts of this story, and maybe very deliberate, is that these three persons were the very opposite of what a Jewish male like Paul would ever have been. In fact, if you go and look at some of the extra rabbinical history of Jewish customs, you would see that every Jewish head of household would rise in the morning and thank God in a very typical and common prayer that he was not born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Perhaps Luke chose these three individuals on purpose to flip that story on its head. I, I, I don't know, 
But here we're all three of these kind of people now united in Christ and the very foundation of the church that God was birthing on the European continent. And I think that's why Luke ends the story in verse 40, referring to all of these new believers as brothers, sisters, as the family of God. And I think that's why Paul would write in Galatians not too much later in chapter 3, or maybe he'd already written this in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 26 through 28. He says, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, now there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And the beauty of this story, guys, is that all of us, in our lives, have someone that falls on this spectrum, one of these individuals, one of these stories. Heck, each and every one of us at one point in time were this person. Now put flesh on this story. Where are you in the story? Where's your neighbor in the story? Where's your loved ones and your friends and the people that you work with, your co-workers? Where are they on this spectrum, right? Lydia, the religious person who thought of herself as very moral and upright, yet she didn't know Jesus nor understand the depth of her son or her sin and who Jesus was and how he fit that sacrificial system of Judaism or the slave girl, the addict, the broken one who needed the liberating power of the gospel or perhaps the jailer, I don't know, maybe the agnostic, right? Who maybe there's a God definitely not seeking him, content to live life on his own, kind of do his own thing, call his own shots. Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia powerful enough for the slave girl and he was practical enough for the jailer and Paul saw them all and I'm convinced that he saw their faces as he began to write this letter to them. And so the big takeaway is this, are you, are we experiencing the kind of gospel partnerships that Paul experienced among each other? among your own communities of faith? Because I know a lot of you guys don't do church here at First Orlando. Are we experiencing the gospel together? Are we seeing God liberate prisoners from sin and slavery and bondage? Are we seeing God save skeptics and dismantle the doubters through rational intellectual conversations? Are we seeing God do those things in our own communities? It's not that the gospel's lost its power. <laughs> I think it's because we've allowed our relationships to be found on something much less than Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so Paul is writing to people that at the center of his relationship was Jesus and his gospel. And our hope, my hope, is that we would build these kind of gospel relationships so that we can see God save those who don't know him. Pull them out of slavery and bondage and break chains Thanks for listening to this podcast. We would love to see you on Tuesday night, 7 p.m. in the Student Center at First Baptist Orlando. You can check us out on Facebook. It is the easiest way to get in touch with us and find out what is going on in our ministry.